so here's the deal. We made it past Halloween. And so for some of you, um, for some of us rather, I should say, that means uh, several different things, okay? I will say for me personally, the next three months are like my favorite months of the year. If you throw out the whole like weather thing, uh, I love the next three months, right? Some of you probably went into, so Friday or Saturday, maybe yesterday, you took down your Halloween decorations, your fall decorations, started decorating for Christmas. I'm not gonna ask you to confess, um, but maybe you've already started listening. To, wow, somebody's really excited about that. Um, some of you, you've already started listening to Christmas music. I will ask you to confess that. Anybody already listening to Christmas music? Okay. And you're proud of it too. I appreciate that. Uh, I guess it's about Jesus, so that's fair. Um, and so uh, now if you're listening to Santa Claus is coming to town, you just need to change the station or something, okay? That's a little too early for that kind of thing. But, um, but some of you, maybe, I don't know, you're baking cookies or something. I don't know what else you're doing. Maybe some of you are already there. Some of you are more of the like, hey, let's get through Thanksgiving type, right? Like let's, let's get through the whole fall thing before, before you get to Christmas kind of thing. Whatever it is, I would argue that if you set aside the weather of the next three months, the next three months are some of my favorite times of the year. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is because basketball and football season exists at the same time, right? And so this is like, this is like dream come true. I think that heaven will be like November and December when it comes to football and basketball on TV, okay? Uh, I love it. I take it in. So I'm from North Carolina. So Pat's a big football guy, or I guess maybe all Tennessee fans are. I don't really know how that works. But many of you transitioned last year to basketball, but I'm not going to go there. Um, and now you're not really sure because you beat Chattanooga and UAB, but whatever. Pat's not here. I got to make a Tennessee football joke. So, um, uh, but basketball and football go on at the same time. So I love basketball, okay? And so I literally, and I think I've confessed this in this room before, like during March Madness, I will literally watch 40 hours of basketball in four days and I'm not ashamed of it at all, though I should be. So I love basketball. This is one of my favorite times of year. It all happens. Starts Tuesday night for college basketball. NBA's already started. Don't judge me for watching it, but I do, right? I love this time of year. But there's a couple other reasons too, right? We get Thanksgiving on November 28th. December 25th, every same day, every year, right? Christmas, January 26th is my birthday. And so if any of you wanna celebrate with me those things, okay, cash, gift cards, Bitcoin, Apple Pay, whatever you wanna do, just let me know and we can work something out, I'm sure. Uh, but no, these next few months, there's a lot of celebrations that happen, right? And some of those things are holidays, like Thanksgiving and Christmas, right? Some of those things are birthdays. So there's all kinds of things that we do together that we celebrate over the next few months. And it's, and it's a joy. And if you think about those times that we spend celebrating together, oftentimes those are things that we gather around a meal to celebrate. I mean, Thanksgiving's obvious. But, but Christmas, oftentimes, we schedule our life around meals, right? Our whole schedule for the holidays is oftentimes built around meals with people. Birthdays, we do the same thing, right? We do that for graduation. When somebody gets baptized, we celebrate with a meal. When all kinds of things in our lives, we mark milestone moments with meals because it's a place where we come together and we just relax and we enjoy being together. It's where community is built oftentimes around meals and around tables. This is something that is significant in our culture and really for cultures in all of history, meals have been a place of significance in our lives. And this morning, what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about what I would argue is the most significant meal in all of history. The most significant meal in all of history. It's, it's the Lord's Supper. And we're gonna look at what the New Testament tells us about what Jesus did as he gathered together with his disciples to actually show us what this Lord's Supper is and teach us about it. But also where that came from, where did that practice that he was already a part of, where did it come from and how did it change and what does it mean for us? 
Now, here's what I recognize is that for many in the room, right, when we talk about a meal and the significance of a meal, there's oftentimes where what we, what we understand of meals in our lives, whether it be celebrations or the day-to-day, it confuses what we think about the Lord's table or gathering together for the Lord's supper or communion as we call it. Right, because some of you, for some of you, your understanding of a meal is like swinging through the drive-through to grab something before you go to the next thing. Right, for some of you, now some of you are spoiled and you eat like home-cooked meals every night of the week. All right, invite me over; I would love to join you. Um, my wife does that often, and I'm grateful for it. But I'd love to join you as well. Um, right, for some of us, honestly, let's be real. Some of us, like if history is your thing or art is your thing, there's a painting that's been known for centuries. It's known as the the Last Supper. Right, Leonardo da Vinci painted this, and it looks something like this, right? And, and maybe this informs what you understand of this idea of coming to enjoy a meal together as a church family or the Lord's Supper. Now, I doubt that this is exactly what it looked like. I'll be honest with you. My, my guess is they actually all sat around the table until Jesus said, hey, boys, come over here. Let's take a picture together real quick. Um, but, but it probably didn't look exactly like that, Right? But in general, this kind of paints an image, literally, it kind of puts an image in our minds of what it means to come to the Lord's table. What I want us to do this morning is I want us to pause and look at the Bible together about what the Bible says about the Lord's Supper, about the practice of communion. And I think what we'll see, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 11 first and talk about where Paul describes how Jesus instituted this practice for us, this ordinance, this thing that the church is to ongoingly remember. We remember this in an ongoing fashion. And as he does, it raises a couple questions that I want us to look at. Why in the world was Jesus in this room with these guys? Why was he here? And what exactly is he saying to them and to us? So 1 Corinthians 11, I want to read just four verses from this to start with. And then us look together at why are they here and what in the world is Jesus saying? 1 Corinthians 11 verse 23 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, as you can imagine, his disciples are probably quite perplexed by this whole thing that he's saying here. Because he's describing an event that hasn't even happened yet. He's describing his own death on a cross that hasn't even taken place yet. And he's telling them to remember it before it's actually happened. And not only that, but he's actually taking a practice that had been theirs for theirs alone for decades, but Jewish practice for centuries, 1,400 years as a matter of fact, that this had been going on. And Jesus is taking it and he practices the Passover meal, as we'll talk about in just a second, but he turns a corner that also blows their minds by introducing himself into the equation of what exactly they are celebrating in that feast. So to fully understand it, we really do have to go back 1,400 years from what Jesus was saying to his disciples there that night in the upper room. As they're gathered in the upper room, they're practicing something that had been instituted literally, again, 1,400 years prior, 1,400 years ago. At the time, the people of God, Israel, the nation of Israel, was enslaved 
to Egypt. And there was this ruling uh, leader, Pharaoh, a Pharaoh who was, who was evil in many regards and he abused them and he took all of Israel to be his slaves to do his work. And he mistreated them. 400 years into that, 400 years into that slavery, God calls a man out of exile in the desert, a man by the name of Moses, to come and to lead his people out of that place of slavery, out of that place of bondage, out of that place of torture and misery. And so Moses is called out and up by God to go lead these people. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you may know that when God goes to Moses and says, hey, dude, you're my guy. I need you to come lead your people, lead my people out of slavery. Moses' first response is, me? Like, I, I can't even speak clearly. How, how am I supposed to do this? Right? Uh, he, he resists, in a sense, what God has asked him to do because he feels like he's incapable. Now, I want to step aside for just a second because I think this is a real thing for many of us. About a month or so, a month and a half ago, we introduced as a church this idea of who's your one, right? A question that we've all been asked to identify a person in our life who doesn't know the Lord, who hasn't trusted in Jesus, who doesn't understand the gospel that we wanna pray for, invest in, and share the gospel with. Now, for many of us, we, we've written a name on a sticker, right? We've put stickers all over different places. I put it on the back of my phone, which has led to some very interesting conversations. But, but I'll say this, for some of us in the room, we, we have actually approached that much like Moses did when God came to him and said, I have a job for you. When Moses said no, God didn't relent. God said, hey, listen, you be faithful, I'll take care of the rest. You do what I'm telling you, I'll do the real work and I will take care of things. But for us, when God has come to us and placed somebody on our heart, for many of us, we've gone, okay, I'll pray for him, I'll have him over for dinner, I'll show him hospitality, I'll be generous toward him, I'm gonna be kind toward him. Man, but to start talking about Jesus gets really awkward real quick, so I'm not really sure what about that one, God, but I'm gonna do these other things for them. Now, I will say that I've been super encouraged over the last couple of weeks that I've heard of three individuals, three and one of them a family, but three people in our church family whose their one has trusted Jesus very recently. And praise the Lord for that. There's people in our congregation and our church family here that are going, yes, I'm in. I'm praying for them. I'm loving them. I'm being generous and kind, and I'm going to share the gospel with them. And we're seeing people's lives transform through you doing that. But for some in the room, it's that, man, God, I just don't even know if I can say it right. I don't know if I can speak clearly. I want to say to you, I want to remind you what God said to Moses, which is essentially this. You be faithful, let me take care of the rest. You speak, let me make it clear. You open your mouth, let me pour forth the words. You do what I'm telling you to do, and I will take care of the rest. And maybe for some of you in the room this morning, you just needed that reminder, right? Well, we've been a couple months into this and you're kind of growing weary of just praying and being kind and wondering what's next. Be faithful and let God do the rest. Let him be the one that pours forth the words out of your mouth and brings clarity to the minds and the hearts and the eyes of those that listen. But back into Moses, right? So Moses is called out as the leader. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh as the new leader of the people of Israel. And he says, hey, you need to let my people go, okay? This is a message from God, let my people go. Pharaoh, as this most powerful ruler in the world in many ways at the time, at least for the people of Israel, he was, he, he looks back at Moses and he basically laughs in his face. He says, are you kidding me? No, th these are my workers. You just get on out of here. 
And so what happens following that is that essentially God issues 10 plagues on Egypt, on all the people in Egypt, not just some people, but on all people in Egypt. And this is the pattern, right? Moses would come to Pharaoh and say, hey, let my people go. Let the people of Israel go free out of your slavery, out of the bondage that you're holding them under, out of the torturous environment that you're holding them in. And Pharaoh would say, ha, no, not gonna do it. And so then God would issue, he would, he would, he would issue a plague, which grew in severity through all of these. They grew in severity. He would issue a plague. It would cause, then Pharaoh would, would, would relent and he would say, okay, I'll let your people go. And then Pharaoh's heart would be hardened again. And he would say, actually, no, I'm not going to get back to work. And then Moses would go back to him again and say, hey, let my people go. And then he'd say, no, and then another plague would ensue. And this happened nine different times. And then finally, after the ninth one, Pharaoh basically said, Moses, get out of my face. Stay out of the way. You just need to shut your mouth and get out of here. And Pharaoh said, all right, if you don't want to see me again, don't worry about it. You won't. I'm sorry, Moses said that to Pharaoh. So he leaves. And then God gives some very specific instruction to his people that day. And the instruction was essentially, I want you to find a perfect spotless lamb. And I want you to prepare it and then to slaughter it. And I'm gonna give you very specific instructions on what to do with this. And the reason why is this, is because the 10th and final plague was for the destruction. It was for the destruction of the firstborn of every family in Egypt, man and animal. If you can imagine the weight of that, God is gonna destroy the firstborn of every family, man and animal in all of Egypt. But he gives his people some very specific instruction so that there would be clarity for them as to what to do and what to expect. And Exodus chapter 12 is where we find much of that instruction. Exodus chapter 12, God is giving those instructions to his people. And he says this to them in verse seven. He says, then they shall take some of the blood, right, of that perfect lamb that they have prepared and they've slaughtered, they've sacrificed, and they should take some of the blood and they put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses from which they eat. So basically he's saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to prepare this perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb. I want you to prepare it. I want you to slaughter it. And I want you to put some of the blood basically all the way around your door is what he's saying there the two doorposts, and then essentially what we would call a header today, right? The thing over top of the door. I want you to put it around the door to mark that this is the home of my people. God's giving them this very specific instruction, and that instruction is what will lead to their redemption. Faithfully following that instruction is what will lead to their redemption. And it says this then, if you fast forward to verse 12 of Exodus chapter 12. It says, for I will, this is the Lord speaking, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God gives very specific instructions to his people. And those instructions are very clear about exactly what it is that he is saying to them, which is follow this, take this perfect spotless lamb, spread its blood around your doorpost so that when the angel of death makes its way through Egypt, I will know to pass over your home because you are one of my people. 
You are one of my people and therefore I will pass over your home. You will not be destroyed. Your family will not go through the torment and pain of loss because I will pass over the homes of my people. Death will not come to your home. So this is the context, right, in which Jesus is coming from because what would happen is this would mark one of the most significant moments in all of history that God would pass over his people, show his power and authority and destruction and wrath, but be gracious to his people. Be gracious to his people. And so what would happen is God would say to his people, I want you to remember this day. And I want you to celebrate every year this day, this moment in history. I want you to set aside a day every year to remember how I was gracious toward you by withholding my wrath. I was gracious to you by withholding my wrath. I want you to set aside a day to celebrate that I saved you by my grace from my wrath. And at the end of the day, became this practice called Passover, this celebration called Passover. And so for 1400 years, they would celebrate Passover, that God saved them by his grace from his wrath in that moment in history in Egypt, that he saved them by his grace from his wrath and they would celebrate it for the next 1400 years. Then we fast forward to this moment in time where Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. He's about to go to the cross. This is what they're celebrating. They've gathered together to remember that 1,400 years ago, God saved his people by his grace from his wrath. And everything is normal in many ways until Jesus changes the liturgy or the order in which and the words in which are used to celebrate Passover. See, Passover, much like God had given very specific instruction to his people to follow, and celebrate, or rather in, in the moment of Passover when he said, Slaughter the lamb this way, prepare it this way, do this with the blood, wait in this time, right? He, he gave very specific instructions for them on how to celebrate the Passover as well. There was an order to it. There were specific uh, elements that were to be used. They were to be prepared in very specific ways. They were be, to be uh, enjoyed and, and partaken of in very particular order. It was a very specific thing that God had set up for them as they remembered the Passover, And in the midst of that liturgy or that order in which they were doing those things, Jesus sort of flipped the script and he turned the corner on them a little bit because it says that during the meal, he took the bread that they were to eat of and it says that he broke it. And he looked at his friends, these disciples that he sat with, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And I can imagine if it was modern day times, right? Somebody pulled out their phone and Googled real quick, Passover script, uh, that's not in it. Jesus turned the corner on some things here. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. As often as you eat it, do this in remembrance of me. Remember, this is before Jesus' death. And then it says, after the meal was complete, he took the, the chalice, the cup of wine, and what was left of it, because there was a different portion, a different place in the order of, uh, of the Passover meal where they would partake of the wine. And after all of that had happened, there was some left and he took it and he says, this cup represents the blood, my blood of the new covenant. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. 
Same thing, it, it, it wasn't in the script. Jesus rewrote the script, which you can imagine was making their minds go crazy. What in the world is happening here? He's talking about a death that hasn't happened, and he's kind of mishandling or, or changing the script on something that we have practiced for decades, but our ancestors have practiced for centuries. What is he doing? What he was doing that day is he was saying to them, I am the ultimate Passover lamb. That what you have celebrated for decades for you and your ancestors for centuries has all come to a head in this moment because another spotless, perfect lamb, Jesus himself, is about to go to a torturous cross and be murdered and his blood and his body are gonna be broken and shed in order to make a permanent payment for sin that will never need to happen again. Jesus turned the liturgy to them and said, hey, listen, there's a new thing going on here and it is me. And this new thing will change the way that you come to this table, to this meal. Jesus says to them that I've called you to something greater. He was saying, I'm the ultimate Passover lamb. And ultimately what he wanted them to do is not just remember a day and a feast and a celebration or a historical moment. He wanted them to remember the reality of the moment on the cross and the influence and the impact and the implications of that moment on the cross and what they meant that God would then now forever, forever from that point forward, save his people by his grace from his wrath through the blood of Jesus, not just for a moment, but for eternity. You know, if you've ever wondered in your life what, what God thinks about sin, you know, maybe you've wrestled with sin in your own life and gone, God, what does God really think about it? Or maybe you've just played down sin because you haven't thought about this very much. Look to the cross for a moment. If you want to understand and, and see and know what it is that God believes about sin, look to the cross. You know, in the torturous death of Jesus, we see the wrath of God poured out on an innocent man because of the grace of God. You know, when you look to the cross, we see the weight of sin, but that's not all we ought to see. We, not, we shouldn't only see the weight of sin when we look at the cross because of the torturous death of Jesus. We should also see the miraculous grace of God because of that torturous death. Because Jesus was not paying for his own sin. What happened in that moment on the cross is that God saved his people by his grace from his wrath. And the only way that was possible was for his wrath to be poured out on an innocent man. If you want to understand the weight of sin, what God believes about sin, look to the cross. But that cross is not just a reminder of the death that comes from sin. It's the life that comes by God's grace as well. Now, some of you at times, I'm sure you come into this room or wherever, you, know, you step in a church on a Sunday or on a weekend or on a Wednesday or whenever. And you feel the weight of sin then. Maybe. You know, maybe for some of you, that was the case as you came in the room this morning and you felt the way of blowing up with your kids, right? You're like, I thought an extra hour of sleep was supposed to make things easier today, not harder. 
Or maybe you come into the room and you're in the midst of this silent battle with your spouse. And the winner is who can stay quiet longer. You're just living in that. Maybe you came in the room this morning and, and you're feeling the ongoing reminder every time you step in a church that you just feel alone, that you're lonely. Maybe you are reminded when you walk in the church just how you can't imagine that God would love somebody like you. You know, maybe walking in this room makes you think, I hope nobody knows my secrets. Maybe gathering with God's people reminds you of your sin. But my hope is, is that it doesn't leave you just remembering your sin. My hope is that as we gather together as God's people, as we gather together today at this table, that yes, you are reminded of the weight of sin, but you're also reminded of the grace of God. Because as we consider the cross, we remember that that is the place where God saved his people by his grace from his wrath. If it not for the the wrath of God, there's no need for the grace of God. And the cross is the moment where these things collided in the most beautiful way imaginable. The most miraculous moment in all of history. That the grace and the love and the mercy and the wrath and the justice of God would all collide at one place and one time. And as we gather together at this table, we gather together to take this Lord's Supper. We do so to remember the grace of God and the wrath of God. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there's a lot of instruction around this. I kind of want to return there for just a moment before we take these elements together. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is, is not just reminding them to practice this. He's giving them instruction on how specifically to do that. He's giving them very specific instructions on how to do that. And a couple of the things he calls them out for. First is this. First thing he calls them out for is that they're taking it in the wrong way. They're taking it in the wrong way, which really means that they're taking it with the wrong motivation. For them at the time, it was a larger meal. And so they would gather together. And he was saying that you've taken it the wrong way because you've just come to fill up your bellies and get your fix of wine. And that's the wrong motivation, he says, for coming to this table, for participating in this meal. Now, for us, that wrong motivation might show up differently, right? Because for some of you in the room, you came in and you take it because you're trying to impress God. That's the wrong motivation to participate in this meal. It's the wrong motivation for taking these elements. Maybe for some, you're you're trying to actually make somebody beside you or somebody else in this room believe something about you that's not true. And so your motivation is, is off in taking this meal. He warns them of taking this meal with the wrong motivation. He also challenges them and charges them to examine themselves before or as they come to this table. To examine themselves, to ask questions of their own heart and their own sin and their own lives. To consider what it is that's true deep inside of them. Things that God already knows, but that maybe they've been unwilling to to verbalize to him. He says, examine yourselves. And one of the specific things that he tells them to examine or consider is the relationships in the body. Right now, I think this is often skimmed over when we talk about the practice of the Lord's Supper. But Paul says specifically 
that if there is a broken relationship because of sin that needs restoration in that body, in that local body, right? This is why we don't take this alone in our, in our room by ourselves. We don't do the Lord's Supper. We do it together as a body because it's a family thing, right? It's a family thing that we do. And he says, if there's a broken relationship because of sin in that body, you lay these elements aside and go be restored to one another first. And so he warns them and he challenges them, examine yourselves. What sin is in your life? Is there brokenness in relationships in the body that need to be restored? Deal with those things. Examine yourself, find those things, identify those things as you come to this table. You know, earlier I talked a little bit about about meals and how significant they are in our, in our lives in many ways. And this above all meals is the most significant that we participate in. But if you think about the way that in a place that oftentimes those meals take place, it's around a table, isn't it? I know for me in my home, our, our dining room table is like the one piece of furniture that I would like give my right arm to not have to give up, Okay. My wife and I, we've been married for 15 years and 13 of those years we've had this table. And around that table, we have laughed, we have cried, we have celebrated, we've mourned, we have, we have shared the gospel with people, we've disciplined our kids and discipled them. We've, we've, we've celebrated things that we thought were never possible around that table. We built friendships and relationships around that table. Some of you have been around that table with us and there's a depth of relationship that you find when you gather together at a table. There's a reason we find that language all throughout the Bible, to gather together at a table. And so for me in my home, this, the table is the centerpiece of my home. It's the place where, where all of these things in life meet. It's where life change happens. It's where monumental moments take place, both good and bad, around that table. And this morning we come to a table because Jesus has invited us to a greater table than the one in my dining room. He's invited us to a table that is eternal in nature, that is familial, it's for the family to gather at together, the larger church family for us to gather at together. And Jesus today invites us to that table. Now, I want to mention one other thing in 1 Corinthians 11 before we come to this table together. And I'll ask our ushers can go ahead and come forward as we prepare to serve this meal together. But as they come forward, let me, let me remind you of something else that Paul says. He says that there is another warning to be heard as we come to this table. And it is this. If you have not trusted in Jesus for your salvation, do not eat of this bread and drink of this cup. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, he even says that you will eat and drink judgment upon yourself from God by participating in these elements. And so in just a moment, when we begin to pass, I want you to hear this, that if, if that is you, in the same way that there is no shame in bringing our sin to the Lord, there is no shame in letting these elements pass. This church will not be a place of shame upon those who have not trusted in Jesus, but a place of prayer that you will, a place of hope and longing that you will trust in Jesus. And so in just a minute, as you get these elements, I wanna ask you to hold them. Just hold them in your hand and take a moment to examine your own heart, to consider what's happening in your own heart and mind and life, to, to 
to take these elements, to hold them and examine your relationships in the body? Are there some that are broken that need to be restored and ask God to give you clarity on what that means and how that can happen? If you let these elements pass and parents, this may be the case with you and a kid. If your kid is not trusted in Jesus or if you don't know, there's no shame in letting these elements pass. It's a moment for discipleship, for teaching, for training. If you let these pass because you've not trusted in Jesus, my hope is this, that even though you don't taste these elements, even though you don't have them in your hands, that the Lord would open your heart to taste and see that he is good. That you would see a great display of love celebrated because of how the grace of God and the wrath of God met on the cross to provide freedom for the sinner, to provide hope for the broken, to provide salvation for God's people. And so if you let these elements pass, may God show that to you as you do. So as you get them, you hold them, you examine, you pray, and then we'll come back together and take them in a
want us to do something together. You know, when we gather at the Lord's table, I don't know what it's like in your home, but it gets really old really quick if I'm the only person talking at the table. When we come to the Lord's table, it's a family table. This is a table that we gather at together as a church family, right? And so in my home, I ask my kids questions at dinner every night. And I wanna hear from them because I wanna learn from them. I wanna see and experience what it is that God's doing in their lives. Well, this morning, we're actually gonna spend some time talking together at God's table, at the Lord's table, because it's a family table. And when we gather as a family, we talk. We remind each other of things that are good and true of the Lord. And so there, there's a, a catechism several centuries old called the Heidelberg Catechism. And all that is, is it's a, it's a series of questions and answers, 52 of them to be exact, that walk through different foundational beliefs. It, it was designed in Germany. The whole idea was to train students and young pastors the foundational elements of the faith. And it became practice for families who followed the Lord to to teach and train their kids and to remind one another each week of the good and true and real things of God. And so this morning, we're actually gonna use one of those questions and answers from that catechism that speaks specifically of the Lord's Supper as a means of reminding us what it is that we're doing together. So we're gonna talk together as a family for a moment, okay? And so I'm gonna read this question and then together we will answer that question. You'll be able to follow along on the screens because, and it might be a little messy, right? We may not all say the same words at the same time, all right? But guess what? My table at home, it never, it's always messy. It's never clean and well put together, I promise. If it is, it doesn't last long. But this is a family thing. So let's look at this together. I'll read the question and let's together read the answer. How does the Holy Supper remind and assure you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his benefits? In this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat this broken bread and to drink this cup in remembrance of him. With this command come these promises. First, As surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup shared with me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me, his blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of the one who serves and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord, given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood. So surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. You know, if you listen to the language that we just read together, it says, so surely as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, may it remind you of Jesus. May it remind you of his sacrifice. May it remind you of his goodness. May it remind you of God's salvation by his grace from his wrath. That's why we remember death in order to celebrate the life that we find in Jesus. We remember his death because it brought us life. We remember his wrath because his grace was displayed. 
And so as we eat of these things and drink of these things, we do so in remembrance of Jesus. The Bible says that on the night that Jesus would be betrayed, that he took the bread and he broke it with his disciples. And he looked at them and he said to them, this is my body. Not in the sense that physically you're eating my flesh, but he says, this represents my body, which is and will be broken for your sin. As often as you eat of this bread, he says, do this in remembrance of me. And then around the table, he took what was left, the wine, and he raised that glass and he said to them, this is the blood of the new covenant. That word new was pretty significant for them because it was a new thing that God was doing through the body and the blood of Jesus to provide salvation permanently, not something that we had to do once again every year, but permanently that he was the permanent and ultimate Passover lamb, that his blood would be the payment for our sin. And he said, as he took the cup, he said, as often as you drink of this, which represents my blood shed for you on the cross, do this in remembrance of me. You know, as we gather at this table, it's tempting to just look back on what Jesus did, even in that Passover meal where he instituted the Lord's Supper. It's easy to look at this table today in present tense and go, wow, God is doing great things among us. But church, I wanna encourage you to look forward to another table that God calls us to. It's, it's a table where we will gather at, at the end of time as we know it on earth, but for eternity with all of God's people, with the Pauls and the Davids, with the, with the faithful men and women that have followed Jesus before us and the faithful men and women that will follow Jesus after us, that we will gather all together for the wedding supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19 speaks of this, and it says this, the angel said to me as John is having this revelation of that moment, this vision of that moment where we will gather together around the table. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. Church, family, brothers and sisters in Jesus, we've got a greater table to look forward to. And praise God that this glorious display that we have, that we celebrate regularly together, is just a taste. It's just a small foretaste of that day that we will celebrate together for eternity. But let me remind you of this, until he returns, we continue to do this. We don't do this to earn something from God, we do this to remember the work of God. We don't do this to, to gain something, we do this to demonstrate our love, gratefulness to the one who has called us to his table for eternity. Let's pray together. Father, you're good. You're always good. You're good in all things. And this morning we can remember that together and I thank you for it. And I, and I pray, Father, I pray this morning that as we've gathered at this table, we would be reminded that it is the greatest display of love and grace and wrath judgment and mercy that the world could ever know, that we could ever know, how you saved your people by your grace from your wrath through the blood of Jesus, the ultimate lamb who would be slain for sin. <laughs> Father, thank you. 
And thank you, Father, that that is not just a good promise for today, but that it is a promise that we are secure in for eternity if we've trusted in Jesus. That there is a table coming, a day coming, where we will gather together and we will get off our hands, that we will get on our feet and we will scream and celebrate because you are good, that Jesus is reigning and ruling above all things. And Father, that we can today rest in that reality. Father, you are good. Thank you that you've invited us to your table. Thank you, Father. It's in the name of Jesus we pray together. Amen. Well, we're going we're gonna to watch a video in just a moment that I want to ask you to stay around for. Um, and in a sense, this is sort of a family, a family conversation that we're having this morning as well in regards to this video. And I want to ask you one thing. It'll make more sense in just a moment. Um, because of the nature of some of the information in this video, put your phone away. <laughs> I'm not asking you, uh, here's the deal. Some of you really like to be the first person to know things. And then you like to, for other people to know that you're one of the first people to know things. I want to ask you to put your phone away and not communicate with anybody for the next five or 10 minutes, okay? Uh, and it'll make way more sense in just a moment. But we want to have a little bit of a family conversation about something that God is doing in the life of our church as well, okay? All right, let's watch this together. Hey, LifePoint, man, we hope you're having a great day, and we want to communicate to you some very important news about David and Jennifer and their family that also pertains to our Riverdale campus uh, down in Murfreesboro. Uh, as you know, David has been with us for about 13 years on staff. He served as our student pastor for about uh, six or seven years. Uh, he served uh, after that. I, I asked David, David, man, would you consider going to Bangkok uh, to be our campus pastor in Bangkok? Now, that's a big commitment. That's uh, a few thousand miles away. Uh, obviously, they prayed about it, and David and Jennifer came and said, Pat, if that's where the organization needs us, that's where we'll go. So he served there for three years. And then at the end of that, I said, David, uh, would you consider going to Murfreesboro and starting our Murfreesboro campus, which is now our Riverdale campus? And he prayed about that, he and Jennifer, and they came back and said, Pat, if that's where the organization needs us, that's where we'll go. That's, that's the kind of loyalty uh, that David and Jennifer have served uh, in this place with over the last 13 years. And so in that 13 years, it, it, it was obvious to me, and probably you too, if you know David and Jennifer, that God has gifted him, equipped him, and even called him to be a senior pastor. And so that's what I've been training him to do, to be quite honest with you, over those years. And in the last couple of years, we've had a lot of conversations about David's future and what God's calling him to do. And, and so and it, it become clear to me and to David through that, man, this is, this is moving to where God is calling him to go do that. And so during my sabbatical, I uh, uh, was spending some really concentrated time with the Lord this summer, and, and it became clear to me that, man, we need to, we need to release David uh, because he, he's loyal to this place, and I know he was struggling, and, and it's just to release him and tell him, man, if that's what you need to do, let's, let's go for that. So the week I came back, actually, David wanted to sit down and talk, and we talked, and, and so uh, I said, David, man, it, I think it's time, and, and you think it's time, and, and so I, we're here to communicate to you that God has called David and it's now time for David to move out and to be a lead pastor of a church. And so, uh, man, it's bittersweet for us, but uh, uh, it's, it's bitter because we don't want to lose his family, but it's sweet because it's what we've trained him to do and, and everything. And David, why don't you tell us what's going on with you and where you're going, you and Jennifer and, and everything, where you are right now. Yeah, so first of all, LifePoint has been so gracious to us. We, we, it has been such a joy and uh, a blessing on our lives just to be able to be pastor here in every capacity that we've been here for 13 years. And uh, 
you know, as Pat mentioned, I have over the last two years been wrestling with uh, how God has gifted and called me and uh, just this kind of restlessness and tension between uh, my calling and loyalty and love of this place, church, staff, everybody. And so uh, God has been so good to us just to continue to call and to be patient with us and and uh, just to, to, to open doors for us to go and, and be that lead pastor. And uh, uh, and yeah, like we said, it's time for us. Uh, God has uh, opened those doors at a church uh, in South Florida. And so we're going to be suffering for Jesus. Yeah, I mean, when God calls you, I mean, I threw David over the top. He's calling me to the beach. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, right. And no, uh, God has opened the door for a great church in South Florida. The name of the church is First Baptist Church Boynton Beach. And uh, we're going to be the, I'm going to be the lead pastor there. And uh, we'll be moving our family in the next couple of months. And uh, but God has, again, just been so gracious to us in our time here to, to raise us up, help us to grow, help us to have great influence, and and uh, just helping us to be that senior pastor that and train us to be that that we, we need to be. And so it's bittersweet. Uh, you know, it's uh, sweet that we get to go be with a great congregation, healthy, beautiful yeah. church. Uh, but it's bitter that we leave a place that we love so much and care for and has cared for us. Uh, so much. And so uh, we want to let you know what's going on with us. And, and by no means does this mean that we're dropping off the face of the earth. Right. We hope to still be connected with a lot of you and with this church and be partnering with LifePoint in some capacity. And uh, we know God has uh, used these 13 years, not just for those 13 years, but we know God uh, will continue to bear fruit for our time uh, together. And so we're looking forward to what that looks like in the future. And church, the man, it, it, we've used the word bittersweet. We use it again. It is. Uh, it's bitter because we're losing him, but sweet because, he, he, man, he grew up in this church, really. When he was a teenager, got saved, came into this church. It's what we've trained him to do, and so that's a beautiful thing, church, uh, to do that. And so uh, David's not just, he said, not dropping off the face of the earth. We're not just, he's not leaving. We're sending him, all right? right, which means we're going with him, and we'll partner with him in any way possible, especially if it means hanging out at the beach some. So uh, we'll, we'll partner with them <laughs> yeah. in any way possible. And so, uh, man, he's going to be here, and Jennifer, their family, are going to be here for another couple of weeks at Riverdale and then uh, they'll be heading on to Florida and so we just want to communicate to you what's going on we want to tell you God bless you uh, and God is awesome and he is going to uh, you know do great things through David and Jennifer and still in the life of Riverdale and all of campus at Life Point so God bless you I hope you have a great day and uh, thank you for uh, being a part of this wonderful congregation yeah love you Life Point Well, it is something for us to celebrate that the Lord is, is doing a great work in David and his family. And let me just remind you of something. Uh, I believe that this is great for David and many of you that know David and many of you in this room, uh, you've watched David and especially Jennifer. Some of you watched her grow up here uh, even from a baby, right? Very, very young. And uh, many of you have watched David grow in his own ministry. And uh, some of you in this room, probably some of you students, you got saved uh, in, um, at camp while David was preaching. Some of you were in David's student ministry probably at some point. Some of you have been impacted by Jennifer's ministry in different ways. Uh, you know, the reality is, is that uh, something good for them is also good for us. And we may not necessarily see that 
at the first glance of it, uh, but God's sovereign in all things, right? If he knows the number of hairs on somebody that has a lot more hair than me, his head, um, then he can understand and be in this and working in this in great ways. And so we're excited for David, uh, but I know there's a lot to process for other folks in the room. Uh, For some of you and many of you, I know that this impacts you deeply because of our love for him, but it gives us a chance to practice what we say matters significantly to us, which is sending with great confidence in the Lord, and even willing to send uh, among our best, right, to the ends of the earth. Now, the whole idea of South Florida is really attractive too, I know, um, but here's what I want to encourage you to do. They're going to be around uh, in our life point spaces over the next few weeks, uh, and then they'll be transitioning over the next couple months. I want to encourage you to reach out to them and love on them and thank them. David's not the only person transitioning. This affects his wife and kids significantly as well, and I think sometimes when the person that we see publicly It's the person our mind goes to the most frequently. And I want to encourage you, having walked through a transition from a church that I was a part of for 12 years that my wife grew up in, uh, it's really hard. And uh, his family needs encouragement too. And so walk with them, encourage them, shoot them notes of of encouragement and thanks. I know David is also open to cash and gift cards and Apple Pay and Bitcoin, I'm sure all those things. Um, but, But love on them over the next few weeks. And let's thank the Lord together that God has done a great work in that man and his wife and doing a great work in his kids. And we're excited to see how the Lord uses him to continue to grow the kingdom of God in South Florida and even around the world, okay? I want us to pray together this morning uh, and let's thank God for that man and for his family. Let's thank God for what he's doing and let's ask God to give us wisdom as we kind of walk through this season uh, with them together. Let's pray. Father, uh, you are good. You're above all things. You do hold everything together. It's not news to you. It's it's not surprising to you anything that happens in any of our lives, in any of our days, because your ways are higher and your thoughts more lovely, Father. We submit our will and our desires to you and say what it is you want, God, you do, and we will follow and we will trust. And so, Father, in this, we pray that. We pray that for David and for Jen. I pray, God, that you would be near to them in a great and great and meaningful and mighty and powerful and significant way. God, that you would be with them, that your nearness would be good to them, that you would uphold them with the righteousness of your right hand, that you would guard them on every side, that you would hem them in, that you would protect their minds and their hearts, that you would guard their marriage, that you would guard their relationships with their kids, Lord, that you would raise up their kids to run and follow hard after you. And that this moment and this transition would be a significant part of that, God. God, I pray for our Riverdale campus this morning. And I pray, Lord, as they process this, as they process this, Father, that you would remind them that you are very good and near to them as well. That you would uphold them with the righteousness of your right hand, that you would guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus, that you would lead them to trust you more deeply during this season. And so, Father, we trust that your plans for your kingdom are greater than anything we could ever draw up ourselves. And so we trust you in that. God, in this season, I pray that you would grow our Riverdale campus, that you would grow the ministry of LifePoint, that you would grow the ministry of First Baptist Church, Boynton Beach, Florida, and that the impact of that growth would spread across the world, that the nations would know that Jesus is Lord. And so we trust you in that and all things, God. We send with confidence because of your work in David and Jennifer because of your work in their family, because of your work in our church, because of your work in the world, we send with confidence, God. So thank you that you're good in all things. May you grow our trust of you during this season. We pray that in Christ's name, amen.